Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 12, please. There are black Bibles in the pews in front of you. <coughs> if you're not extremely familiar with your Bibles, the chapter number is the big number, the verse number is the tiny number. There was a man named Augustus Caesar. This man conquered Judea and brought it under the control of Rome as a province in A.D. 6. A.D. 6. That's not long after the birth of Jesus Christ. One of the first things that Rome would do when it would conquer a land or conquer a people would be to establish its own rule in this conquered land. And it would go about that by putting its own political appointees, if you will, in the land. They would put governors and leaders and soldiers. And their job in this new conquered land would be, you know, at least two things. One, to keep the peace, that is, prevent uprising. People who have been conquered don't typically like to be conquered, and they try to rebel and throw off the shackles of the nation that has conquered them. And then two, the job of these political appointees, these governors and these soldiers, was to keep the money flowing. Keep the money flowing. The Roman Empire was a massive machine. And the machine needed to keep the fuel pumping into itself so that the gears of conquest could keep grinding. And the way that it kept fueling itself was through the taxation of the people that it conquered. As you can imagine... Conquered people didn't like to be conquered, and conquered people didn't like to be taxed after they were conquered. Some nations hated it more than others. For some nations, smaller nations, as a matter of fact, being conquered by Rome or by any other major empire wasn't really that bad of a deal. You know, Rome offered technology. Rome offered culture. For many small nations that were always afraid that this nation or that nation was going to come and kill them in the middle of the night, Rome even offered protection. And the price of this protection, this culture, this peace, this technology was to pay your taxes. Other nations, on the other hand, were notoriously rebellious. They just could never quite get over being conquered by some other nation. And the nation of Israel was one of these nations. Whether we're talking about Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or Persia, the people of Israel could never quite adjust to being conquered by some other nation. They rebelled time and time again, even when it cost them dearly. Enter a man named Judas. Long before a man named Judas Iscariot came along and betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss, there was a man named Judas, and he was a rebel. Judas the rebel aroused God's people out of their slumber, his words, not mine, in an effort to cast off the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. His cry was that if you Jews pay taxes to the Romans, then you will be under the thumb of Rome. You're going to be under the, Ro the rule of Rome, under the rule of man, not God. And not only that, you're going to be under the rule of a Gentile man. 
not just any man. The slogan of the American Revolution was, no taxation without representation. The cry of the Jewish revolt was, ah, nobody knows it. It was no tribute to the Romans. No tribute to the Romans. Tribute was a word for tax that you would pay to Caesar. No taxes to the Romans. Judas was, you know, terribly unsuccessful in his campaign against Rome. He was killed in his rebellion, as were almost all of his followers. But the fighting, rebellious spirit of Judas and of those who came before him in the Maccabean Revolution, that spirit lived on well into the days of Jesus. Paying taxes was something that every Jew had to do, but most of them did it begrudgingly. As a matter of fact, some of these Jews just outright refused to do it. They accepted the penalty, the suffering for it. Some Israelites became zealots. Zealots are what we now might call terrorists or freedom fighters, depending on your perspective. But these zealots were zealous, that's where the name comes from, to throw off the oppression of the Roman rule. And they would certainly never pay taxes. They would capture, kidnap, and kill Roman centurions, authorities from Rome of any variety, tax collectors. They would either kill themselves rather than pay taxes or allow themselves to be killed. And then there was the physical act of paying taxes itself. The physical act. You see, the Jews, they weren't fans of anything being uh, bearing the image of man. You know, one of the commandments is no graven images of God, right? There's just no images of God. We know that that's a rule, that's bad. But the Jews thought, well, man is created in the likeness of God, is created in the image of God, so it's probably not good for us to have even any engravings of man on anything just to be safe. This idea was taken so seriously that if you went to go pay your taxes in the temple, you could not pay your taxes with any coins that bore the image of any human being. Half of the job of the money changers in the temple was not to just trade, you know, Ethiopian money for Jewish money. It was to trade out coins with the image of Caesar on them for coins that didn't have any image at all. Because that was the only kind of coin that could be used in the temple. To a Jew, a coin with the image of a man on it was not kosher. But the image of Caesar, the leader of the evil Roman Empire... The man who claimed to be God? That was just too much by a mile. Not only did it have a picture on him, of him on there, as we, one might look at a quarter today and see the image of George Washington, it also had an inscription. In our coins today in America, we have an inscription as well. It says, in God. Well, the inscription on the Roman coins read, no, but close. Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. My father is God and I am his son. See where the conflict might come in for a Jew? For the Jews to even handle money that ascribed deity to somebody else other than the God of the Bible was deplorable. Some devout Jews were known to be so disgusted with these coins and their inscription and their image, that they wouldn't even look at a denarius. That was the name of the coin that had this in particular. 
If somebody would show them, they would turn their face away so that they wouldn't look at it. This is the context in which the drama of today is played out. The text that we are going to read today is set in this socio-political, religious context. Now, remember also where we are in the book of Mark. The religious leaders have just been embarrassed by Jesus twice. The first time they were embarrassed was when they tried to trap him. And John, you know, uh, Jesus turned around and, and trapped them. They tried to trap Jesus. Jesus flipped it on its head. Jesus said, well, what about the baptism of John? What do you guys think? And they got together and they were like, uh, we've made a terrible mistake. And they said, we don't know, which is an incredibly hard thing to do for people as pompous as these, you know, to say we don't know. But they said, I don't know. And then in response to that, Jesus tells a parable with them there present, a not-so-subtle parable against them. It's obvious to everyone in the room that this parable is an assault on the religious leaders. They themselves know it. The text says they perceived that he was speaking against them, but they were afraid to do anything about it. Which brings us to the account that we find in this morning's text. The religious leaders are so wounded from their previous encounters with Jesus, they are so desperate to bring Jesus down, to make him look foolish, to topple him from his position of authority. And this whole, this whole chapter 12, last part of chapter 11, has all been about Jesus' authority. They're so desperate to rob him of his authority that they begin to make some strange alliances. The Pharisees, the people who are anti-Rome, all purity, can't have any mixture of the two, are teaming up with the Herodians. The Herodians were a Jewish sect that was pro-Rome in many ways. They were seen as, by most of their Jewish contemporaries as traitors. So you have these anti-Rome and these pro-Rome Jewish parties coming together in an effort to take Jesus down. This is like Fox News and MSNBC teaming up to go cover a story together. You know, it's just not going to happen. This is like the Klan and the NAACP working together to solve a matter of social justice. It's just not going to happen. And yet it happens today. These two parties who are at completely opposite ends of the socio-political spectrum unite together in their opposition of Jesus. They approach Jesus with the intent of deceiving him. The account in Luke says that they sent out spies to try to trick him. Maybe they're even still thinking about the trap that Jesus laid for them when they talked about the whole John the Baptist thing as they try to lay the, their snare this morning. After they think that they've basically convinced Jesus that, that they're trustworthy, after they think that they've managed to deceive him, they ask Jesus a question. They say, so should we pay taxes to Caesar? Or not? Let me rephrase this question for you so that you might hear it in the way that a Jew would have heard it in his day. To whom will you be loyal? God or Caesar? Let's read the account for ourselves. Mark chapter 12, starting in verses, verse 13, going through verse 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
For you are not swayed by man's appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be obedient to you today as your word does its work in our hearts. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. If I were to speak in overly binary terms, I could say that there are two kinds of people in this world. The first would be those who view the government as the enemy, always as the enemy. A libertarian friend of mine told me that during the last election he was going to vote for Donald Trump. I was shocked. He's no fan of Donald Trump, and I asked him, why? Why would you vote for Trump? I know you're not a Trump guy. And he said, he said that he believed that Trump, if he got elected, would damage the government so severely that the gears would just stop grinding. It would just, it would just, everything would just stop working in the entire government. And that is my friend's idea of a good working federal government. You know, a government that doesn't do anything. This Ron Swanson-esque friend of mine views all government as bad, all taxes as theft, that sort of thing. Then there's another kind of person who sees the government as a sort of savior. The government has all of the answers to all of life's questions and problems. You know, no matter what the problem is, the government can fix it. They can pay for it. They can legislate it. They can bomb it. They can build it. They can tax it. They can build a committee to go explore it. You know, there's nothing, nothing that this all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wise, all-powerful state can't do. All hail the state. That kind of person. The truth is, government is good. It was given to us by God. Romans 13, 7 reads like this. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, a good God. But there's another truth about government besides the truth that it's good. And that truth is that this good government exists in a world that has been corrupted by sin. The very same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 13, which I just read, was also executed by the Roman government that he was speaking of. When Peter tells Christians to submit to the governing authorities, he says that as a disciple of Jesus Christ. As a man who witnessed his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, die at the hands of two evil governments colluding together against him. The reality of the fallenness of this world and its effect on the government and its use of authority is not lost on these men as they tell us to submit to the governing authorities. So how do we make sense of this? How do we honor God by submitting to the authority that he has established in our lives but do that in a way where it doesn't seem like we're submitting to the sin that is inherently connected to the governing authorities that we're called to submit to. 
Well, I think the answer to that question comes from the very last verse in today's text. Let's, let's go back and reread it to make sure it's fresh in our mind. Verse 17. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I have two points for today's sermon, and I did not come up with them on my own. The two points are, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Not a lot of creativity. There will be some subpoints, so note takers, be prepared. Point number one, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The man who discipled me has a library with many leather-bound books. It smells of rich mahogany. People love to come and look at his books. I mean, he's got thousands of them, okay? And he's read more of them than you could possibly believe. And occasionally, he'll let you borrow a book if you ask very nicely. Each book, if you open it up to the very first page, has a symbol on it. The symbol in the middle has M-E-D. Stands for Mark Edward Dever. And then on the outside of that, you see Mark Edward Dever. This symbol lets you know who the book belongs to. Hey, who does that book belong to? Well, it belongs to Mark Edward Dever. How do you know that? Because it bears his symbol telling you that. Well, as we saw earlier, this same sort of thing is at play with the money that was being used by those who were under the occupation of Rome. Whose money is that that you're using, that you're handling? Well, it's Caesar's. It's Rome's. Well, how do you know that? Well, it bears his image. So on, on, on one level, on a superficial level, Jesus kind of shuts down this whole debate just by saying, well, it has this picture on it. It belongs to him. Just give it back to him. That's true. But there's also something else going on here. Jesus is being a little bit more subversive than we might imagine at first glance. You see, Jesus, and sub, subversive to who, we'll find out in a minute. The word render that Jesus uses when he says render unto Caesar is the Greek word apodidomai. And this word means, from the dictionary definition in the Greek lexicon, to meet a contractual or other obligation. To pay or to pay out to fulfill, to give someone their wages, their vows, their duty. It has the meaning not of a gratuitous payment, like, you know, when your waitress does a good job, you give them a little bit of extra money just because. Not of a gratuitous payment or of a gift, but of giving something to someone that belongs to them. Very important. David Curtis says this, the payment of a tax is not a gift given to him who levies it, but a debt owed to him for benefits received. Jesus could have just used the word give when he talked about giving money back to Caesar, when he talked about paying taxes, but he doesn't. He uses a very specific word, render, and that word is always used when somebody has done a service and you pay them for the service that has been rendered. Or when there's a debt and you give them back the money that you owe them because you're in debt. If a tax were something like a gift or a free will offering, then it would certainly be problematic for the Jews to pay it. None of the Jews wanted to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar and Rome, who 
put them to use in such evil ways that it would have led them into spiritual conflict? You know, a Jew would have thought, if I pay a coin that bears the image of a man that thinks that he's God to the man that he thinks he's God, who will then use it to do great evil in the land, am I not in some way contributing to that idolatry? In some way contributing to that evil? And that's a reasonable concern. You know, we want to know, where's the threshold? Where, where does my being obedient end and my being culpable or guilty begin? But Jesus himself, who is righteousness, seems unconcerned by that. He says that if it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. Now, part of the reason that he says that is because it has this picture, it belongs to him. But another reason that he says that is because we owe that money to Caesar. We owe that money to the government. When you give Caesar his taxes, you are actually paying him for services rendered. You know, if you want to read one of Mark's books, you're participating in his book borrowing system, and you're benefiting from it. If you were a Jew under Roman occupation, you traveled down the Roman road that they built for you, you were receiving benefits from them. If you were receiving the safety and protection of their guards, you were receiving benefit from them. If you were participating in the culture of the day, you were receiving benefit from that government. You are participating in and benefiting from the system. So in a very real way, even evil governments are rendering services to us as citizens. And when we pay taxes, we are not merely offering up a free will gift. We are paying for the services that have been rendered. The cost for the Jews participating in that system was a denarius, which was a coin that was basically worth a day's wage. The cost for us today is a percentage of our income. Some would say too much of a percentage. But in both cases, receiving the benefits of the government means that we give to the government that which belongs to it. One of the interesting things about Jesus' teaching here on how we ought to relate to the government, at least in some way, it's like two sentences. Not a lot. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, Jesus doesn't have much more to say about how we as Christians ought to relate to the government. But when you read your New Testaments, you see that his disciples, like Peter, like Paul, Paul the Apostle, they spin it out a little bit more for us, as if they maybe perhaps were trained by Jesus a little bit more, maybe in privacy, maybe in records that we don't have. But they seem to understand a little bit more about what Jesus meant. And so you come to a place in Romans where Paul obviously has this in mind, and he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. See the word owe there? Connects back to this word render. Paul tells us to pay the taxes because that's something that we owe. It's the right thing to do. Now, this may lead you down a path where you know, you decide that you won't live in that system. You won't live in the American government system or whatever system, and you're going to go off the grid, you know, so that you don't have to pay taxes anymore. Um, yeah, we don't really have time in this sermon to talk about that or to talk about the fact that, you know, the Jews didn't choose their government, that Paul knew that as he was telling people to be obedient and pay taxes, or the fact that really you didn't choose your government even though you live in one of the most democratic nations that the world has ever known. We will talk more about this. If you are down to have lunch after church, I'd encourage you to just come and have some pizza, and we'll talk a little bit more about 
kind of how all of this sort of thing spins out, and uh, we'll have a good discussion. The fact that Jesus is having this conversation, the fact that he's even having to engage in this debate, it shows that the religious leaders, they haven't really been paying attention this entire time. They've been so busy trying to trap Jesus. They've been so concerned with trying to trick and to topple Jesus that they haven't been listening to Jesus. Jesus has been saying for the entirety of his ministry that he is not trying to establish an earthly kingdom. He's trying to usher in the kingdom of God. You know, these religious leaders, they're they're expecting Jesus, this Messiah figure, to come and want to conquer physically, to want to overthrow the Roman government, to establish an earthly kingdom. And it would make sense, if that were the case, that Jesus would say, stop paying taxes to the evil Roman rulers and start paying taxes to me, your messianic king, your good, righteous ruler. That would make sense. But Jesus didn't come to topple Rome. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God. And here's the thing about the kingdom of God. At least for a time, the kingdom of God will overlap with the kingdom of Rome. At least for a time, the kingdom of God will overlap with the kingdom of the United States of America. At least for a time, the kingdom of God has room for a Caesar. It has room for a King Louis. It has room for a Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, the kingdom of God doesn't merely allow these lesser kings to remain in their positions of authority. The God of that kingdom places them there according to his plan. There's an already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. You know, when Jesus goes around talking about the kingdom, he says, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here, you know. But then there's other times where he says, it's still coming. And it hasn't been fully fulfilled. That kind of gives some of us a little bit of heartburn when we try to understand it. There's this already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. The way that I often try to describe it is like, the time in between D-Day and V-Day. Do you guys remember D-Day? We stormed the beaches of Normandy and, you know, people said that when, when we won that, we really won the war. But there was still a lot of fighting that had to take place after that. V-Day is victory day. It's the day when everything was finally done and settled. Everyone had signed their agreements and the war was over. The day between D-Day and V-Day is what we are now living in as Christians. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It came with Jesus. And he secured it by his death, burial, and resurrection. But it has not been consummated. It has not been fulfilled yet. That time is still coming. There will be a day when Jesus comes and he perfectly establishes his perfect righteous rule and reign on this earth. But in the meantime, in between time, God has ordained that human government exist along with his own authority. And he commands us to submit to those governing authorities. Peter says it like this. Be subject, listen to this wording, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, the emperor, the evil emperor who's going around killing Christians, The one who cuts Paul's head off? 
The one who's dragging people down the steps of the Roman Colosseum attached to a bowl? The one who's using our tax money to fund infanticide? Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to him, sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. Paul says it like this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And then later in that same passage, Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. But what about our allegiance to God? How does that how does our allegiance to God play into this whole thing? That's the same sort of question that a Jewish man or woman might have had as they listened in on this conversation between Jesus and these spies who were sent to trick him. Remember, Jesus has a zealot in his crew of disciples. He has a zealot, somebody who wanted to do violence in order to throw off the oppressive arm of Roman rule. Somebody who would have rather died or killed than to pay taxes to Rome. Maybe as Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, Simon the Zealot was sitting there listening to Jesus, biting his tongue so hard that blood began to come out of his mouth because of how angry he was at this idea. I can imagine Simon the Zealot sitting there, maybe he didn't say it verbally, maybe in his head saying, yeah, but what about our allegiance to God? Doesn't that matter? But Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't stop when he says, render unto Caesar. He also says, render to God the things that are God's. He doesn't say, government good, obey government, pay taxes. He qualifies his statement. Point number two, render to God that which is God. So the question is, what belongs to God? What is owed to God? Well, the answer to that is the simple Sunday school answer. Everything. Including you, including me. (coughs) The coin that bears the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. We as human beings bear the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says it like this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. We bear the image of God and we belong to him, body and soul. In saying what he says here, Jesus says a few things. And if, if you're ready for your subpoints, here they are. Here are three subpoints. He puts a limit on the authority of the state. He reinforces the authority of God. And he rejects Caesar's claims to deity. He puts a limit on the authority of the state. He reinforces the authority of God. And he rejects Caesar's claims to deity. As you read your Bibles and you read about God-ordained institutions like state, marriage, family, church, You see that when God gives an institution, he also gives that institution authority, right? When I was in the army, I was often asked to do jobs that were above my pay grade, and I didn't have the rank insignia on my chest 
to be able to boss people around to get them to do the things that I needed to get done. It was incredibly difficult. To try to accomplish a job, a task, without the authority that you need to carry it out, nearly impossible. But when Jesus establishes authority in the land, uh, excuse me, establishes an institution in the land, he gives it the authority that it needs to carry out its job, its mission. So the authority that a father has is not his own authority. It's the authority of God working through him. The authority that the, you know, the elders of this church have is not their own authority. It's the authority of God working through them. The authority that the state has is not its own authority. It's the authority of God working through it. And here's the thing. God always places a limit to the authority structures that he has in this fallen world. He always has a system of checks and balances. There are always boundaries. Long before God, excuse me, Freudian slip there, long before the founders of this nation drafted the Constitution of the United States, God put a system of checks and balances on the authority of the state. So when Jesus says, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, that's actually a pretty limited statement. Well, what belongs to Caesar? Uh, according to 1 Peter, submission in matters of law. According to Paul, honor. According to Jesus, some paper, some pieces of metal. But not ultimate allegiance. That belongs to God. We in our entirety belong to God. So there may be a time when the state demands something of us that goes against our ultimate allegiance to God. And if that day comes, our allegiance to God and His authority must win the day. In that moment, we must give to God that which belongs to Him, our obedience. If the government tells you to pay taxes, you pay your taxes. That's kind of a simple application point. Regardless of your libertarian leanings or whether you think all taxation is theft, you just obey the Bible. You pay your taxes. You give them back what belongs to them. But if the government tells you to deny your only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, you disobey and you obey God. You render unto God that which is owed to him, which is his obedience and his honor and his glory. If the state tells you to take a pinch of incense and to alter it onto the fire of the altar of Caesar, you say no. If the state tells you to fly a Nazi flag in the narthex of your church, as they did in Nazi Germany, you say no. If the church tries to step in and tell you who can and can't be a member of the congregation, or who can and can't preach God's word to you, you reject that authority. Your authority, for example, your submission to the authority, for example, to your boss, that's only secondary. It's good, but it's secondary. Your submission to the authority of the elders is good. As a matter of fact, it's commanded by God explicitly. It literally says, submit to the rulers that the Lord has placed over you. You know. But even that is only secondary. If I come up here and say, I command you to start believing a false gospel, Submit to my authority. Your obligation is to reject that and to render unto God that which is God's, which is the defense and proclamation of the gospel. 
Your submission to the authority of the state is good, and it is ordained by God, but it is secondary to the authority of the kingdom of heaven. Do we have to choose between serving God and Caesar? No. Because God commands us to submit to Caesar. So obey God. But God also commands you to limit your submission. Both commands are valid. One just limits the other. So that might be a little heady. Let me just give you an example from my everyday life where I practice the same sort of authority limitation. So Amber and I rarely get to go on uh, date night. But when we do, we have a babysitter. Some of them are better than others. But we have babysitters. And when the babysitter gets there, we walk through our routine, you know, and I say, uh, Amber actually does the routine, give them the bath, put on the diaper, you know, food in the fridge, blah, blah, blah. And then I get the girls and I bring them before me and I, I, I try to sit down and look them in the eyes and I say, you know, what are you supposed to do with a babysitter? And they say, obey. And I say, what's going to happen if I hear that you're being rebellious? We're going to get a spanking. You know, they know we've had this talk. So I tell them, obey the authority that I've placed in your life. But then I say this, and what are you supposed to do if the babysitter tells you to do something that's bad or wrong or sinful? And they say, not listen. We're not supposed to listen. Right? I'm doing the same thing. I'm saying, obey authority unless that authority tells you to disobey God. I've said this before, but it's probably worth just saying again to the children. All the children in the congregation, listen up. I'm not going to try to say everybody's name like I did last time and messed up. Children... God calls you to be obedient to your parents, to listen to them, to obey their words. But if your parents ever ask you to do something that goes against what God has told you to do in his word, you disobey. If they tell you to lie, you say, Mom, I can't lie because God tells me to be honest. If your dad tells you to cheat or to steal, you say, Dad, I love you. I want to be submissive to your authority. I want to respect you. But God tells me, my Father in heaven tells me that I can't steal. Maybe you won't be that articulate at 7 or 9 or 13 years old. You just resist that sin and you obey God. You'll probably feel that temptation a lot more as you get older and the world presses in on you. In the statement, render to God what is God's, Jesus is saying something substantial. He's saying that Caesar is not God. If he would have just said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, it could have been left open-ended. Well, what do you mean when you say Caesar? Do you mean Caesar as the Romans understand him, this you know, divine being sent down to rule and govern us, or do you mean Caesar, the evil, oppressive ruler? But Jesus says, render to God that which is God's, which is Jesus' way of saying, okay, the little guy with a, you know, a complex who thinks that he has all the authority in the world he wants you to give him some pieces of metal that have his image on it. Okay, do that. But he's not God. There is a time when God's going to demand something of you, and you need to obey that. There's a real God, and there's a man who thinks he's God. This simple statement totally undermines the entire political theory and religious life of the Roman people. Now, there are many parts of this sermon, excuse me, there are many countries around the world where the sermon, as I've preached it thus far, it would be very non-controversial. Very non-controversial. Submit to the governing authorities. You know, a hundred countries around the world would be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's what we do. But we are a nation 
born in rebellion. If you ever were to even hint that we should not have rebelled against Britain, well, just go ahead and try it. Next time you're having a conversation with a guy who has an American flag pin on his, uh, you know, Navy hat, let me know how that goes. I say that as a soldier who fought in the Army, so... We are a nation born in rebellion. We take ships full of tea and throw the tea in the harbor. Ironically, just making another really big cup of tea. Anyways, I'm sure that those who were present for this showdown between Jesus and the hypocrites, they probably walked away with more questions than answers that day. You know? And maybe you've still got lingering questions. You're American. We rebel against authority that we don't think is good, right, and true. That's just what we do. So I don't understand. There's just this cognitive dissonance. Things don't feel like they're connecting for me. You know, how can it be right for me to pay taxes to a government that would use them to fund abortion or unjust wars, etc.? Sean, isn't there a place for civil disobedience? You're not alone. The Jews would have had these same sorts of questions as they listen in to Jesus' teaching. How can it be right for me to pay taxes to a government that has conquered Israel, the people of God, that has attempted to carry out genocide, that has killed our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, that forces idol worship, whose leader claims to be divine? How can that be right? Is there not a place for civil disobedience? I myself even wonder, you know, as I consider these things, how can it be okay to pay taxes to a government that uses them to fund the murder of hundreds of thousands of human, ba- human beings, babies, every single year. Just this week, a Republican Congress passed a budget that allowed $500 million, a half a billion dollars, to go to Planned Parenthood, whose only business is killing babies. They claim to offer mammograms. They claim to offer women's health services. They give out a lot of uh, birth control. But 90% of their business is killing baby human beings. And $500 million of your taxes went to go fund that just this week from the party that claims to be pro-life. The government that Peter told his readers to submit to was just as evil as ours. His government was the government that killed the Son of God. They, do you remember when Jesus was born? The ruler wanted to find out what, where this guy is, what's going on. Well, if I can't find him, it's okay. I'm just going to kill every baby in the land. This is nothing new. Our government isn't the first government to use its taxes to do evil in the land. The the, the legitimacy of government is not based on its morality. The legitimacy of government is not based on whether or not it worships the true God. Every government outside of the old covenant government of Israel, and even not even that government, is morally out of line with the will of God. There is no government on this earth that worships the one true God. Not the Roman government that Paul told us to submit to, 
or told his readers to submit to. We submit to the government because God in his providence has placed us right where we are in this particular sphere of authority for our good and for his glory. One commentator says it like this. If Christians could support Rome, what government can we not support? If Christians could pray for the Roman emperor who is systematically annihilating them, what government can we not pray for? If Jesus and Peter and Paul could tell us to pay taxes to Rome, the government that murdered God's son, what government can we not pay taxes to? Again, because I'm preaching, I know that there's not a lot of interaction here. You know, I mean, there is interaction. I see a, uh, you know, a nod here, falling asleep there. But most of it's verbal on my part, nonverbal on your part. I imagine if we were sitting in my living room having this conversation, or better yet, at Buffalo Wild Wings, getting down on some wings, if we were having this conversation, it might go a little bit differently. You know, I wouldn't be able to kind of get out a whole string of thoughts like this without somebody saying, yeah, but what about this? Oh, what about that? I get it. You're probably doing that right now. And I appreciate you wrestling through this with me in your heart as you listen. But remember, this sermon is not, the point of the text here is not Jesus trying to give us the answer to all of our 40,000 questions that might come up about how we as Christians ought to relate to government in a fallen world. That's not the point of the text. That's not going to be the point of my sermon. This is a one-hour sermon, not a six-week Sunday school class. But before we close, I do want us to focus on one particular application that we should consider in light of everything that we've seen here. That's on Christian unity. This is kind of like a sneaky third point. It's not really a point because it's not the point of the text, but it really matters, and so we're going to talk about it. Christian unity. As you know, because I've said it several times this morning, Jesus had a zealot as one of his disciples. Jesus also had a tax collector as one of his disciples. We're back to the opposite ends of the spectrum thing here. A tax collector was viewed by Jews as a traitor. You're going around for Rome taking money from your own people so you can go fund this evil empire. Just terrible. It would be as if one of the members of this church were to go and sign up to be a volunteer for the abortion clinic, not to stop people from going in, but to help them get to the door. Then you have the zealots, these people who were willing to do violence and to have violence done to them in order to stop the Roman government. Two completely polar, opposite political views. Jesus sovereignly calls them to himself as part of the same team as his disciples. You think that was on accident? I don't think so. I don't think so. Jesus wants to show the world what it looks like to be unified around him, not around political views. He also wants to be glorified when the world sees people who even have different political views unite around him despite their political differences. It makes him look glorious. The world doesn't work like that. You're a staunch Republican, I'm a staunch Democrat, you're a staunch Libertarian. And the three will never meet. You know? We live in our own little bubbles. Now the common thing that we talk about is the echo chamber. You know, we only on Twitter and Facebook follow people and have friends with people who are and friends with people who share the same political views that we do. And 
you know, if someone crosses the line and says something we don't appreciate, we block them or we unfriend them or whatever. We live in this echo chamber. I'm sure that these two brothers, Simon and Matthew, the zealot and the tax collector, I'm sure that as they followed Jesus and were discipled by Jesus, their political views probably converged some. They probably came closer. But I'd be willing to bet not 100%. I'd be willing to bet that even as disciples of Jesus, their political views did not perfectly 100% coalesce. You see, the same two people can agree on the essentials of the gospel, but may end up arriving at different conclusions on how the gospel should inform decisions related to government, like voting for a proposition or for a president. And when I say two people, I don't even mean two people, one of them mature, another one of them immature. I mean two mature Christians who fully believe and understand the tenets of the gospel and who are obedient to them can come to different conclusions on how that gospel should affect our life politically in this fallen world. How should you vote on Proposition C? I don't think there's actually a Proposition C, is there? No, good, I chose it because I didn't think there was one. How should you vote on Proposition C? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say, Eric, when this proposition comes up in your ballot, this is how you should vote for it. But it does say certain things that may lead you to land on a certain decision on how to vote for Proposition C. Great. But you should leave room for your brothers and sisters in Christ who may disagree with you on that. Maybe they haven't spent as much time as you thinking about these things. Maybe they come from a background that skewered their perception. Or maybe you're wrong. Either way, you should be charitable. This last election was atrocious. It was terrible. It wreaked havoc in this country, and it wreaked havoc in the church. Some Christians thought, I cannot and I will not vote for Donald Trump. The man is in the wrestling hall of fame. He brags about grabbing women by the private parts. And he does it. He doesn't just brag about it. He's involved with pornography. He's a serial divorcer. He's a false professor of, professor of Christianity, etc., etc. So I just can't vote for a man like that. I can't let my son and my daughter see me voting for Donald Trump. Other Christians said, I can't vote for Hillary Clinton. She is the world's worst liar. Her whole life is a lie. She has been part of covering up rapes, perhaps even murders. She wants to further the LGBT agenda in such a way that it will destroy the family unit and the life of America. Gay marriage will forever be cemented if she has a choice to elect Supreme Court justices. She wants to raise the funding for the murder of infants in our land. And if she's president, we know for a fact, we don't know what Donald will do, but we know for a fact that she will lead to more babies dying in this country. Then you had the Christians who said, I just don't see how you can vote for either one. How can you be so ignorant to be trapped in this two-party system? Vote your conscience. Then you had Christians who didn't vote at all. Whatever camp you happen to fall in during this election, and it probably depends on where you live and kind of your background, how much time you've been thinking about politics, a bunch of different factors. 
there was probably a couple of other people in different camps pointing a finger back at you. If you voted for Donald Trump, you were probably being mocked by some of your more liberal friends. If you voted for Hillary Clinton, you know, some of your, you know, gun-toting, you know, Republican card-carrying friends just, they just couldn't believe it. If you didn't vote, you're th throwing away a vote. And if you voted third party, you're basically throwing away a vote. And it wasn't what they said. Some of the things that I've just said are valid. Many of the things that I've just said are valid. It wasn't what was said. It was the way that it was said. It was said in such a way as to communicate, oh, you, you came to a different conclusion than me on some political matter. How can you even be a Christian? How can you... I mean, I know you're a Christian, but how is you, as a Christian, how could you vote for Donald Trump? How, as a Christian, could you bring yourself to vote for Hillary Clinton? That tone. If you want to show the world what unity in Christ looks like, we have to make room for political disagreement in the life of the church. We don't gather around party politics. If God instituted a party that perfectly reflected his will, we would. If there was the God party and every part of the God party was perfectly in line with the will of God in all matters, morally, socially, etc., we would be that party. But that doesn't exist. It's not the Republican Party. It's not the Libertarian Party. Certainly not the Democratic Party. We don't gather around party politics. We gather around Jesus Christ. As a church, we die on the hills that we're supposed to die on. I will never marry a man to another man in the life of this church. I will never marry a woman to another woman. We will never say it's okay to murder babies. You know, we're going to die on these hills that we have to die on. But if we don't have to die on a hill... We will extend grace and charity and mercy and love to our fellow professors of Jesus Christ. Does it mean that it's right for a Christian to vote for Donald Trump? Does it mean that it was the best move to vote for Hillary Clinton? Maybe not. I'm not going to tell you who I voted or didn't vote for. But who are you to judge someone else's sermon? Every man has to answer to his own master. And you are not that master. We hold each other accountable on things that are clearly sin. But if it's left up to Christian conscience, our attitude should be that of charity, love, hope. I have very strong political opinions. But I try not to share them much in the life of this church. I try not to say much from the pulpit about it or from a Wednesday night Bible study. If me and you are in the car together and we're talking, I may even decide not to let you know what I think about a certain thing here or a certain thing there. There's a reason why. I, as your pastor, have a certain amount of capital built up. I have a certain amount of influence. And there's only so many things I can say or do that you disagree with before you decide to up and leave this church. And I lose influence in your life. And I'm not going to waste not even one dollar of that emotional, spiritual capital on politics. Why? Because I could be wrong. I could be wrong about Proposition C. I could be wrong about gun control. But I'm not wrong about the gospel. 
I am not wrong about you being dead in sin and needing a Savior, Jesus Christ being that Savior. I'm not wrong about this ministry of reconciliation that God has given me and has given you. Roy Moore, Doug Jones. Where do we go there? You may be wrong. Here's the thing. What if you judge your brother or your sister and condemn him or her in your heart? Or even worse, on social media? Or even worse, via gossip? For something that God doesn't condemn him for. Your brother said, you know, Roy Moore, man, I just can't bring myself to vote for someone who could have done that to a woman. I'm going to go Doug Jones. And maybe unwisely they talked about it on on Facebook. And now you're judging them in your heart. But what if God's not judging them? Or vice versa. Maybe you voted for Doug Jones and you're judging somebody who voted, excuse me, Roy Moore and somebody voted the other way. But now it gets worse because you're not only judging someone over something that you could be wrong about. But you're also creating disunity in the life of the church. As a church, we do not gather around the Constitution. We do not gather around the Republican platform. We do not gather around libertarian, small government leanings. We gather around God's Word. God's Word forms us into a people. And when we gather, we gather around that. And it shouldn't need to be said, but I'll say it. The Constitution of the United States of America is not God's Word. There is only one infallible document, and that is God's Word. The Constitution is not it. You can see it in the simple fact that the, that, that the Constitution has amendments. There are no amendments to God's Word. At the beginning of this sermon... I pointed out how the Pharisees and the Herodians, these two parties on opposite ends of the spectrum, how they unified in their opposition to Jesus. You remember that? What if we as Christians united around Jesus, not politics? I'm not saying that we can't be certain about political issues, that we can't speak clearly, but on the whole, I want you to consider something. I want you to consider how surprisingly apolitical, that is, non-political, your New Testament is. It does not have a lot to say. It's as if the God who inspired the Bible knew that the kingdom of this world was going to pass away, that it was going to be here today and gone tomorrow. It's as if the God who wrote your Bibles knew that The governments of this world are surprisingly unimportant when compared to the kingdom of heaven. Today's text shows us a battle. And the battle is not between us as followers of Christ and the state. The battle is between Jesus and his enemies. At certain points, that bleeds over into the political sphere. But it's not primarily political. We do not wrestle against flesh blood or even kings and rulers and laws and constitutions, we wrestle against spiritual powers and principalities. This is the battle that we are even now engaged in. And I, I die inside a little whenever I see one of my brothers or sisters in Christ 
spend more time contending for their political views than they do for the gospel. As Christians, many of us will be called to contend for the faith in the political arena. And many of us will be called to do good, to love our neighbor through politics. But most of us won't be. But every single one of us has been given the work of the Great Commission. Every single one of us has been called to hit the campaign trail for the kingdom of heaven, to call dead men to life, to bring sinners back to God. Every single one of us has been called into the realm of eternal politics. Will we be faithful in that? Will we be just as faithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors as we are to advocate for a specific policy or Mayor Tab Bowling? Will we use our social media platforms for the glory of Christ as much as we use them politically? Will we see ourselves as kingdoms of heaven in such a way that makes the kingdom of this world seem surprisingly and increasingly less important? Jesus Christ did not die for any political party. He died to reconcile dead men back to the Father. And God is calling all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, and to turn back to him in faith. Even this morning, those who have the state as their God, as their idol, turn from that. Stop trusting in the state. Stop trusting in the government. Stop trusting in America. Stop trusting in your party to save you. It can't. Only Jesus can. Let's pray. As sinners, Father, we take the good things that you've given us and we make them ultimate things. I pray that you would help the members of this church to not take the good thing of government that you've given us and turn it into an ultimate thing. I pray that you would help us to not spurn your good authority in the state nor trust too deeply in it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Thank mm-hmm. you.